May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. If you've opened up your Bible there, you may please stay there and want to look at these verses. I have to be honest, I have thoroughly enjoyed studying the Gospel of John. And uh, the title of my sermon for this morning is a little bit cheeky, it's a little bit cheesy. It's when Jesus shows up to his own party and is rejected. When Jesus shows up to his own party, and is rejected. And you saw that take place in the passage of Scripture that Paul just wrote for us this morning, or read for us. He didn't write it, he read it, sorry. And we're going to make our way through now what is commonly called or known in Israel as the most celebrated feast of Israel. The Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is called. That's the backdrop of this particular event here in John 7, and we're now going to encounter from John chapter 7 all the way to John chapter 12, a settled rejection of Jesus. That's what you get in this particular section, and that's what it is. Those are the facts. I find it a bit amazing being in my mid-40s in a 21st century culture that for the constant need of the modern world to find the quote-unquote lovable Jesus... I'm amazed at how much we simply don't take the time to actually read the Bible. You see, the love Jesus, as he is often called, caused quite a stir in his world. He was actually anything but popular. In fact, maybe a more apt word would be he was infamous. That would be the way he was described. Now, he was popular if he would do what popular culture wanted him to do. And as for the government and religion, well, they were equally both scared of him and hated him. Those are just the facts as you read them. Yes, Jesus was loving. He was accepting. Jesus was approachable. He was tender and compassionate. He was kind. He was gentle. He was meek. But Jesus, as we are about to see, spoke with authority. He spoke with passion and urgency. He spoke the truth about himself and others and the world. In fact, if you read the Gospel of John, he talked candidly about sin. In fact, if you study it, he talked more about hell than he did about heaven. He talked about how to know God and believe in God and trust in God and have a life-changing effect by doing these things. And you see, Jesus loves us so much that he tells us the truth about ourselves, even when it's not exactly what we're looking for. And I would challenge you on this last Sunday of May of 2018 to take the time this week or this month and read through the Gospel of John. Read it chapter by chapter. Read it all in a one session. It will only take you less than an hour to read all 21 chapters of it. Read it in sections. Read John chapter 1 to 6, or 7 to 12, or 13 to 17, or 18 to 21, and you'll quickly see patterns and principles start to fly off the page, and yet every time, you're going to end up at the same place. As I have started every sermon, and likely by God's grace, we'll do it again, you come always to John 20, 30, and 31, where you find out why John wrote what he did. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, what I have written, John says, are so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, by believing you may have life in his name. 
This is John's purpose statement. And as Paul mentioned in his reading, as Steve prayed in his prayer, I want you and I invite you and I challenge you to fight the urge to give in to familiarity, to say, oh, listen, man, I've grown up with this. I, I know John. This is the one book I know, Pastor. I've memorized verses. And, and stop and fight the urge to assume you know what this means. And let's ask all of us this question at the beginning. If you're here with us this morning, can I ask you, can I ask myself, are you a Christian? More than just religiously. Are you truly a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus? And if you would answer, yes, I am. Pastor Steve, I am a Christian. Okay, that's awesome. I rejoice with you because I am a Christian. But we have to then say, how has being a Christian changed our life? I don't know if you've read, I believe it's in uh, what's name Brenning's book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, and others where he talks about how we say, I am a Christian. And he talks about in his illustration is if you were invited to go to meet someone at a restaurant and the person is late that you were going to meet, and not just five or ten minutes late, but like an hour, hour and a half, two hours late, and you've sat there somewhat embarrassingly sipping water with lemon in it as people have come and gone as you waited and waited, and then the person walks in perfectly dressed, perfectly clothed, and says, oh, listen, I'm so sorry I'm late. I was hit by a transport truck. It ran over me and destroyed my car, and yet now I'm here with you. You would all know immediately that you are being lied to. Because we all know that if you get hit by a transport truck, one that runs over your vehicle, you do not look all put together afterwards. And yet, how often do we say, I am a Christian, and yet our life doesn't look at all like it's been impacted greatly by the transforming power of Jesus. And so I want you to fight this urge because the passage today is all about this If you want to know why you are here, young people to older people, if you want to know what your value and identity, then I want you to pay close attention to what John opens the door here in John 7 for us to see. Because in John chapter 7, verse 14, all the way, believe it or not, to John chapter 8, you're going to see two groups of people, the Jews and the crowd. And every one of you is a part of one of those two groups. And yet, both groups in our narrative, John 7 and 8, will reject Jesus. In fact, you can see it broken into three parts over the coming weeks. Today, we're going to look at the rejection of Jesus' divine authority and power. Next week, we'll look at the rejection of Jesus' divine identity and His mission. And then after that, we're going to look at the rejection of Jesus' divine invitation and promise. And when we come to the end of John chapter 7, into the beginning of John chapter 8, we're going to skip over that very controversial passage and we're going to take it up in John chapter 8 verse 12 and get to the end of 8 and then I'm going to go back and deal with the end of 7 and the first part of 8 and deal with one of my favorite stories in all the Bible to think deeply about. But let's come back to this because today I want us to consider for a few moments when celebrations go wrong. Now, allow your mind to imagine with me, because I don't know if you've ever watched America's Phony Home videos or uh, Fail Army or you've gotten on YouTube, or as my father-in-law calls it, the YouTube. I don't know why he thinks it's that, but it's the YouTube. And you can look up all those things, especially those ones where there's those wedding fails. 
You know, those celebrations and everybody have put lots of things, and I don't mean to scare Lucas and Elvera as you plan for your wedding, but you know where someone where the, someone faints halfway through the ceremony or worse yet, someone throws up? Have you seen that one? Or the cake is dropped? Or have you ever been at a wedding or celebration? The plan was for it to all go well, only for it to take a turn. Something awkward happens. Someone falls or something like that. Someone drops the rings. Have you ever been at a gathering, a birthday party, a Christmas dinner, a big family night, and, and then you want it all to be joyful and you want it all to be happy, but you get there and then you realize, man, it's tense. It's just not at all going according to plan. Have you ever been at that Christmas gathering and you're supposed to have Christmas dinner, but prior to the Christmas dinner, someone in the family has that family fight, and now you all got to sit around the, the table and have turkey together. And everybody kind of tries to pretend like nothing happened. And so everybody is, pass this, can you pass it, thank you, please. Everybody's like over polite, and everybody's trying not to make eye contact while you eat in that awkward tension. Your faces tell me so much as I say this to you right now. Some of you experience this and live this. Have you ever been to a party. You're having a blast. And then someone crashes the party that wasn't invited. Someone was there and they, you knew that they weren't supposed to be and then it's just awkward. But consider this. Consider that you're at a party for someone. You've been invited to come and celebrate someone's party. And, and the guest of honor finally shows up and the, there's cake and party prizes. The music's great. The food is amazing. The people are all having a great time. And, and, and when the guest of honor arrives, instead of yelling out surprise or happy birthday or breaking out for he's a jolly good fellow, everybody looks at each other and wonders, why are you here? Wouldn't that be bizarre? Imagine a celebration for someone where you turn on the someone when they come to their own party and you question them. Why are you here? Who invited you here? And someone looks and says, this is my party. <laughs> and then you say, well, why should you be the center of attention? And that's exactly what's happening here. It's exactly what Paul read about when back in the beginning of John chapter 7, remember when Jesus' own biological brothers, his half-brothers, daring him to go up to this feast, this feast of tabernacles. Of course, Jesus will not allow even family to dictate the terms of God's will or his obedience to God's will. But in verses 14 through 24, the plot thickens. The drama unfolds. The opposition becomes more bold, and yet... Here is lovable Jesus, patient and kind and gentle and honest, truthful, loving, and a holy God. He proclaims truth. He offers eternal life to all and anyone. And I believe we see three primary principles, and I'm just going to give you the first one today, and we'll look at the next next week. Here's my first big principle for you to take today. To be like Christ, you've got to obey God. If I, if I could just give you one thing to take away with you. If you want to be like Christ, you've got to obey God. Now forgive me this morning because I want to give you some background so that this gospel comes to life for you. Because in John chapter 7, 8, 9, you've got to understand these feasts. John gives you these markers, the Passover feast and the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of, of Booths as, you're here, as you have here. And you've got to get this because verse 14 gives you the timing and the context for what's about to unfold in verse 15 all the way to the end of chapter 8. 
Remember in verse 14, Jesus tells us, or John tells us, we're halfway through the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And if you're just reading that, you'd be like, okay, that's great. You're halfway through some gathering. Why is that important? Well, it is. The Jews referred to this as the feast or the holiday. It was a seven-day feast in which then on the eighth day, so the first day of the next day, it was called the high and holy day. And believe it or not, this feast, the Feast of Booths, was the favorite feast of Israel. One passage of Scripture that you guys know well, we sing songs about it. I think uh, Grace and, and, and Leanne sang about this last week. It's Psalm 91, 1 and 2. For he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will, says the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This was verses that the crowd of Israel would sing in preparation for this feast. This was a joyful celebration. It was a celebration of fond memories and hopeful expectations. In the Hebrew, the name of this feast is called Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T. And this was the last in Jewish calendars of three feasts that God required all the males of the nation to come before him. There was the Passover feast, which many of you know, it's where we get Easter. And then after that was the Feast of Weeks that went on for seven sevens, right? 49 days. And then the 50th day, there was this big celebration. And then came the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And you can read all about it in Leviticus chapter 23, 33 to 43. If you want to get the background of this, read Leviticus 23, 33 to 43. Now you need to realize that this celebration was so popular was because of timing. It came at the end of the harvest season. And Israel at this time was predominantly an agricultural nation. So the work is done. The barns are filled. God's provision and blessing are on full display. And the memory of this feast was centered around Israel's wilderness wanderings. You remember for 40 years, the nation of Israel lived in makeshift temporary booths or dwellings as God led them. His presence was seen and felt in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And they understood and knew that when not, as long as that pillar of cloud was there, that pillar of fire was there, God was with them. God would provide for them. God guided them. He instructed him. But the feast also had a prophetic element. Because in this celebration, they all looked for the Messiah, what, the time when God's Shekinah glory would return again because it was gone from Israel in the first century. So on the 15th day of the seventh month, for seven days, with the eighth day being called Shemeni Esteritz, or the Solemn Assembly. And as this celebration started, on the first day and the eighth day, there was to be no work done. And you can read all about this feast in Solomon's dedication of his temple in 1 Kings 12. And so you had to build this dwelling place, and you had to come with four types of foliage. And you get this, get this, it was actually mandated that for the seven days of this feast, you were commanded to rejoice. Can you, can you imagine what that would be? Come to the feast and I command you to be happy. That, that you, you were commanded to be joyful. You didn't wear sackcloth and ashes. It didn't matter what. You were to come and you were to rejoice. And then later, by the time you get to John chapter 7, two more traditions had been added to this. One was called the rite of water which during Jesus' day is an integral part of what you're reading about in this passage. 
And the next one was called the waving of the willow branches. So I want you to picture this because it's really hard. So do you really get to appreciate this? Imagine in New Orleans, Mardi Gras. Imagine this was a, a, a gathering of people where they were going to party. They, this was a great time. And, and for us in our culture, maybe as we look to August, it's about regatta day. You know, where all the booths get built and all around the lake and the the boats are going to race. And sometimes, and this one especially for this year, because I think this is like the 200th anniversary of Regatta Day, I believe. And and so it's going to be even extra big and extra special and all these people gather. And I know that I've heard numbers that there's many as 20, 30, and 40,000 people gathered around down the lake down at Kitty Vitty. And you can imagine the preparation that goes into it. Folks planned their booths when they would do it, and it had to be a certain size and a certain shape. And some of the very, really committed Jews would start planning their booth right after Yom Kippur, right after the face, the, the Passover. And they thought it would gain them more favor with God, and they jockeyed for position of where their booth could be. And it was a time to go to the big city and have family reunions and to tell stories of banner crops and harvest. It was a sharing time and a happy time, and it was the favorite of the Jewish people. And that's the backdrop of John 7. It was partay. Around what? God's presence, God's provision, God's protection, His instruction, and His deliverance. And let me get to the best part, this right of water. Because by the time you get to John 7, they had this every day for the full seven days of the feast. A priest would walk up the ramp leading to the bronze altar in the temple court and he would pour a jug of water into the bowl that drained slowly onto the altar and that was made so special because of where the water came from. The background of this is that this water came from the spring of Gehan. And the Gehon Spring was a special place because it was here that Solomon was anointed king of Israel. It was from this spring that King Hezekiah redirected the flow into Jerusalem that to this modern day is called Hezekiah's Tunnel. If you have traveled at all in Israel, I've been inside this tunnel. It's still there to this day. And these waters would run into a place known as the Pool of Siloam. And that's important because the Pool of Siloam is important to Israel and in Scripture. Just in a couple of chapters, in John chapter 9, remember the man born blind? Jesus puts mud on his eyes and he goes to the pool of Siloam to wash the mud off and that's where he receives his sight. Isaiah the prophet talked about the pool of Shalom and the spring of Gehan in Isaiah 44. In Isaiah 12, 3, the pool of Siloam is known as the well of salvation. This pool was associated with two things, the coming of the Holy Spirit and Messiah. So when that priest poured that water onto the holy temple in the court court, court temple of God, onto that altar, it was as if they were reenacting the Holy Spirit of God was coming with the announcement of the Messiah. Are you starting to see the significance? Because here in the middle of all of that, and let me tell you how important this this rite of water was, in the Mishnah of Jesus' day it said this, He that never has seen the joy of the ceremony of the water drawing has never in his life seen joy. That's how serious they took this. 
For them, you didn't know joy until you had seen a priest go down to the pool of Siloam and draw up a jug of water and take it up. And they took it all up with instruments and the band would play in lyres and trumpets and harps and cymbals and the Levites sang in procession and men would link arm in arm and dance around it all this time. And they remembering God's supply and anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And here on the seventh day, they would wave willow branches and friends, John highlights this feast and the timing of it because in the midst of this celebration anticipation and rejoicing Jesus comes right in the middle of this he looks and here they are celebrating and remembering and hoping looking longing wanting and Jesus comes and he speaks in verse 14 and he proclaims and he heals and he provides food and he gives water and he makes people whole. This was enacting John 1.14. Remember, it's happening right before them. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. In John 7.14, you've got the word of God, Jesus, proclaiming the word from God to the people who should have been God's in the very center of where they wanted God to show up. (laughs) Amazingly, look at verse 15. Because Jesus shows up to his own celebration and yet is not wanted. He shows up teaching. And what what do they say in verse 15? Notice, And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now we're back to John 1 again. John 1, 11, he came unto his own, and his own people did not receive him. Notice in verse 15 that term, the Jews. If you write in your Bible, you want to understand the gospel of John. Whenever you see that term used in John, it's a marker to tell us he's talking about religious leaders. It's not Jews in general. Rather, he's speaking about a certain group. The Jews were the ones that wanted to know on what authority or how did Jesus assume to qualify to be a teacher of the law, considering they were the experts, not him. They said to them, notice what it says. Look again at verse 15. When he has never studied, they were the ones that were seminary educated. They were the ones that were seminary trained, not him. But notice what's at play here. Notice this. They couldn't attack Jesus' message, so what did they do? They attacked his credentials. Did you notice that? He comes in verse 14 teaching, and they don't go after what he teaches. They go after him personally. They don't want to deal with him and what he says. And because we face a very similar situation. Come forward now to 2018, the 21st century. Because what Jesus dealt with in the first century, we deal with today. I submit to you that modern-day 21st century religion says we understand everything about God because we're the experts. Whereas culture says, no, listen, you can't understand God, so how dare you have any kind of absolute opinion? So one group says, we're the experts. We'll tell you what to think. The other group says, nobody's an expert, so don't you dare tell me what you think. Welcome to the 21st century. This is the world, especially those of you that are young people in school and universities and and all this. This is what you're dealing with. But I find it fascinating because have you ever wondered what Jesus taught? Have you ever really done a little survey of what he, he made these scribes and Pharisees, the priests and the Sanhedrin react this way? I don't want you to forget that Jesus only a half a year earlier, six months earlier at the Passover, stood in this very temple and claimed to be God himself in John 5, 17 to 24. But let me give you a list. 
at the risk of our time here this morning, let me just give you a small list just from the Gospel of John of the things that Jesus claimed about himself. Now remember, he's come to his own celebration. The Feast of Booths was really a celebration of God. Jesus comes and they're like, yeah, you know, we really don't want you here. Well, here's the reason why. In John 3, 6, and 8, he has said to her that he came down from heaven. In John 3, and all through it, he said he had been sent in the world by the Father. John 3, 16 is one of the famous ones. John 3, 17. In John 3 and John 12, he also said he was the Savior of the world. He said to be the determiner of people's eternal destinies. You can imagine how that sits with people today. In John 3, 4, 5, 6, as well as 10, 11, 14, and 17, Jesus has said to be the source of eternal life. In John 14, 6, Jesus boldly says that he is the only way to God. And so for young people, though, when you're asked, why should I believe in you and not everybody else? You can say, because Jesus himself said he was the only way to God. In John 5, he said he had the right to be honored on an equal basis with God the Father. In John 10 and 14 and 12 and 17, he was one with the Father. In John 5 and 6, he says he has the power to raise the dead and even to raise from the dead himself, which he will do in John 11. In John 5, he said he was to the one to be the one to whom the Old Testament scriptures pointed. In John 8:46, he said he was without sin. In John 17 and John 3 and 13, he said that he had all authority in heaven and on earth. In John 14, he said he had the authority to answer prayer. Why do you pray? Because Jesus said he had the authority. In John 15 and 16, he has the authority to authorize prayer in his name. This is why we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In John 4 and in John 8, he was to be greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, greater than Jacob, and greater than Abraham. And folks, in John 8, when he says he's greater than Abraham, they pick up stones to stone him. In John 6, he says he is the bread of life and the only source of spiritual sustenance. In John 3, 8, 9, 12, and onward, he is the light of the world. In John eleven twenty five, 25, he is the resurrection and the life. In John 4 and John uh, 1, he is the Messiah. And in John 3, 5, 6, 10, and 11, he is the Son of God. These are claims that Jesus made just in the Gospel of John. And John MacArthur is right when he says, there are only three possible explanations for an amazing claim that Jesus made like this. Either he was a deranged madman, he was a diabolical liar, or he was exactly who he claimed to be. And folks, this is what C.S. Lewis fought with in Mere Christianity. And I know many of our younger generation have read this, and if you haven't read Mere Christianity, you should. When he says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Hint, hint, that's in our passage. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his not being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
This is what's before us in John 7 and 8. So John is telling us in verse 15 of our passage that religion decided that Jesus is both mad and a liar. That's what you see. That's what the Jews basically say. And then the crowd will say it in just a couple of verses. They were amazed. that That's not a compliment, by the way, when it says they were astonished or they were amazed. Look at their question. How is it that this man is learning when he has never studied? This was a rhetorical question. They wanted people to say, well, he shouldn't be teaching because he's not trained and he's not uh, studied well. And to the religious elite of Jesus' day, it was unthinkable that Jesus was their equal, let alone their God. Jesus had no diploma to put on a wall. He had no credentials from a denomination. They were amazed, shocked, jealous, and incredulous. This plain Isaiah 53 kind of guy. Remember in Isaiah 53, 1 and 2, he had no shapeliness or comeliness that we should look on him. But remember, Jesus has been confounding this group since he was 12. Back in Luke chapter 2, remember what it says? After three days they found him in the temple as a 12-year-old sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. In Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowd, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In Matthew 13, the folks at Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, when he goes and it says, coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? In Mark 1.22, in Capernaum, they reacted the same way as those in the Sermon on the Mount and they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not of the scribes. And then when you get to the end of John chapter 7, if you have your Bible there, look at verses 45 and 46 because the, the Pharisees' temple police are sent to them and the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And so here you have Jesus proclaiming himself. And they said, who are you? Why are you here? You're not one of us. Unless we be too hard on, the, on them and, and think that we're not like them. I don't know, Steve, if you've got this there, that picture of Babylon B. If you haven't watched Babylon B in Jordan, if you find it, put it on the screen. Here's my favorite thing. Man sitting literally three feet from Bible asks God to speak to him. That's today. Do you know how many people will say to me, Lord, I just want God to speak to me. Or Steve, Pastor Steve, I just want God to talk to me. And I'll, I'll say, well, when was the last time you read your Bible? Oh, it's been a while. You see, these folks said they were experts of the law and didn't know Jesus. And folks, in the 21st century, right here in this room, we can be so close and look so good and we can play church so well and we can be religious and we can be so close to this and yet sitting literally three feet from a Bible and say, God, please speak to me. Read your Bible, pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow. J.C. Ryle puts it like this, be very sure of this, people never reject the Bible because they cannot understand it. They understand it only too well. 
They understand that it condemns their own behavior. They understand that it witnesses against their own sins and summons them to judgment. And so Jesus says to them in verse 16, if you want to be like me, if you want to know who I am, then you need to obey God. And that's what he says in 16 and 17. In verse 16, Jesus establishes his credentials and his position and his authority. He says, my teaching and authority doesn't come from personal experience or learning or insights, but rather I speak the truth from the one who sent me, my Father. That's what he says. And that's why he finishes the way he does. But he who sent me, Jesus says, my teaching and my authority and my credentials comes always and only from my Father. Jesus, in effect, says, I speak about life and death. I speak about heaven and hell. I speak about salvation and eternity because it comes from God directly. And so for me today and each of my fellow elders here this morning and for this entire church, Richard Phillips is right, and I tweeted this out today, the best preaching is that which causes us to remark not on the cleverness of the preacher, but on the clarity of our understanding of the Bible. My usage to you as a church is not in how creative I am, but how consistent I am to say, thus says the Word of God. And that won't always be ooey and gooey. Sometimes that's just straight up truth. You see, according to Jesus, you don't have to be religious to know God or truth. You don't need to go to rabbinical school or seminary. You simply got to submit yourself to the Word of God. And that's found all through your Bibles. Moses told the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 4.29, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him, notice this, if you search for Him with all your heart and all your soul. David counseled his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28.9, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. The psalmist says in Psalm 119.2, How blessed are those who observe His testimonies, who seek Him with all their heart. Jeremiah 29.13, You will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. Are you seeing a pattern? With all your heart. When you want Me and you desire Me, even areas that are hard to understand. Even areas such as God's sovereignty, the Trinity, maybe the role of men and women, sexuality, marriage. Are you sitting quietly at Jesus' feet or are arguing with your own sense of right and wrong and justice? See, Proverbs 3, 5 still holds true. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Many of us in this room have read, admired, quoted, and celebrated Martin Luther. Considered the father of the modern reformation that gave way to things that you and I hold dear and celebrate today. But did you know at the Diet of Worms before a tribunal of his peers, after he was challenged about what he believed and why he believed it, he looked at and declared the claim and promise of Jesus in this verse when he said, Unless I am refuted and convicted by testimonies of Scripture or by clear reason, since I believe neither the popes nor the councils by themselves, for it is clear that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, themselves. I am conquered by the Holy Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. Let us have that kind of resolve 
to the Bible. Augustine was one who said he was one of the most brilliant minds and he said and he concluded that if he ever came to a part of the Bible where it seemed like the Bible disagreed with him, he would always conclude that he was wrong and the Bible was right. That would always be his conclusion. And this is what it means. Notice what Jesus says. In verse 16, he says, My teaching is not mine, but he's who sent me. And in verse 17, he gives us this glorious promise. Young people and old, see it in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, that's your desire, notice the promise. He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Jesus promises every one of you that if you'll turn to the word of God, if you'll obey God, God's word and God himself will teach you what is right. That's the promise. You don't have to sit there and go, no, it's too deep for me. I can't figure it out. I'll let Steve and Steve and the boys explain it to me. No, I'll let Jennifer who studies it because she's kind of weird like that. And, and No, no, no. You can know that. You can get into the Bible and you can know it from the very youngest of you to the oldest of you. This promise is for you and me today. You can know God's Word. The promise of God is that when we do this, when we obey this principle, we will know the will of God and be like Christ. How I love it when people come to me and say, Pastor Steve, I, I need to know what to do. I need and want to do the right thing. But I wish you'd all believe me when I'd say, if you get into the Bible and pray, you'll figure it out. If you get into your local church and get in community, you'll figure it out. This is the promise of God. This is what Romans 12, 2 means. If you will transform yourselves by the renewing of your mind which we're going to see later on next week. And so church, to take home with you, let me give you a couple things to take home. First, we've got to be honest about who we are. Let's be honest this morning. In 14, 15, 16, and 17, you need to ask yourself, am I the Jews or am I truly a follower of Christ? One group claimed they knew everything about God and were experts in religion. As we'll see next week, the crowd said, you'll never know for sure who God is. He can't be understood. So everyone just decide for themselves. And if you ever come across him, just keep asking for signs that suit your own perceived needs. Welcome to the 21st century. Today, I want to challenge you that while the Jews challenged Jesus and his credentials and ability to teach and with authority, notice that Jesus challenged the Jews' ability to hear, listen, and obey. They like... What gives you the right? How are you qualified? And he just turns around and says, well, how come you're not obeying what you say you know? And what about you and me today? Are we busy arguing with God? Blaming God? Trying to reason with God? Or are you one of those people here this morning, like I could be too, behind, hiding behind our own ignorance, saying, well, why bother? God's too big to know or understand. Listen carefully. You cannot and will not use that excuse, I didn't understand the Bible. That's not a valid excuse. To be like Christ is to obey God's 
word. And he made that promise in verse 17. It's a promise that flows out of John's instruction. Remember what John said in his introduction in John 1.12? But to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the question for all of us this morning is, will you trust Jesus with your life? No matter what it looks like, Are you struggling in your marriage? Will you trust God with your marriage and do what he tells you to do in the Bible? Are you struggling with friends, a neighbor, an aunt or an uncle, a sibling? Will you trust God with how to be friendly and how to give things to the Lord and how to do things? Are you struggling in your local church? Are you struggling with your children? Are you struggling with money? Are you struggling with who you're dating or what job to pursue? Are you struggling with addiction? Are you struggling with depression? Are you struggling with mental illness? Are you struggling with friends or being popular or being known? Listen, God says, if you come to me and believe in me and trust me, I will show you show you the way but too often we come to Jesus with the problem and then we don't listen to what he tells us to do I've tried really hard this morning I don't know if you've caught it but I've done something to my left knee I don't know what I've done I'm hoping to go see a doctor tomorrow but I went and saw a doctor on Tuesday And the doctor took it and bent it and buckled it and said, you need to go to a physiotherapist and you need to figure this out. And I went, okay, thank you very much. And then I didn't go to a physiotherapist. I went and told my doctor the problem, but didn't act upon what the doctor told me to act upon. So guess what? After coming down the stairs yesterday and my knee blowing out to the side and I almost fell down two flights of stairs and I really gave myself a fright and I'm still in a lot of pain, guess where Steve's going first thing tomorrow morning? (laughs) To see a doctor. Because if I want real help for my problem, I got to hear and obey. If you want to find healing, then you've got to hear and obey. And secondly, Christian, has your heart been changed? Has your heart been changed? Is the world, or would the world, be amazed by our knowledge of God? Remember, they were amazed that Jesus talked the way he did. Do you know that in Acts chapter 4, his disciples would stand up, mainly uh, Peter and James, and it says this, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, sorry, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, astonished, same Greek word as amazed, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This week, will people in your life, your spouse, your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, your aunt, your uncle, your mom, your dad, will will they take notice that you have been with Jesus? We will only ever be like this if we spend time with him, listening to him, praying to him. We've got this promise in John 14, 17. If you'll obey God, you'll know God. If you obey him and know him, you'll be like him. Do you love him? Do you trust him? Will you? Will you at least ask him to help you do that? To admit your struggles. To admit sometimes there are other loves and priorities that compete in your life. You think God's afraid of you being honest with him? No, he already knows you. Today, don't be religious. Be teachable. 
come to Jesus as, and his word and be changed. And I want to leave you with this. Imagine, I love Ray Ortland Jr. because he does so well to give us thoughts to imagine. And he says, what if our churches turn back to Jesus with nothing but open Bibles and humble hearts? Giving him complete and final say in how we move forward. What if we say to him, we are open to radical change in order to obey you whatever the cost. How could that not go well? Thus it has been written. Will we make it so? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the amazing power found in four verses. I pray, Lord, again, I beg of you that my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, from my wife and my daughter, that they all have heard a better sermon than I could preach. And they will all be kind and gracious to understand that what I preach to these people, I have to preach to myself. And I stand before them in need of everything that I have said. Lord, to know you and want to love you. Lord, I feel so much like Peter. Lord, I love you. And then here you say, but Steve, do you really love me? And I believe there are people right now in this room that are feeling and struggling with the same things. Lord, whether it's anger or bitterness, impatience, grudges. Lord, whether it's frustration or fears. Lord, whether they feel beaten down. Lord, whether they're hiding sin. Embarrassed or ashamed. Trying to figure out or make sense of life. Lord, help us to hear the promise of your word that you have come to us and you speak only of your Father and you will speak to us through your word. Give us a confident hope in the word of God. And Lord, help us as Christians, those of us who say, I've been radically transformed by this. Lord, if we want to be like you, we've got to obey you. And when we are obeying you, then you will take care of the rest to make our neighbors and our friends and our loved ones and our fellow church members see, you know what? He ain't perfect, she ain't perfect, but man, they pursue the one who is and look at how it's changing them. Because you are the one true God. 